0: your place in Matthew chapter 8, there's a lot of things that I wanted to say at the beginning today, and I wasn't sure which one would be best, so I thought maybe just ask a question to maybe consider life experiences, different things each of us may have been through in our lives. Just think about in your lifetime thus far, have you ever been... In a, in a situation where you felt like it was just, um, I don't know, desperation. A, a time of just, you, you didn't know what to do, you didn't know how to handle it, you didn't know what was going to happen. Um, that caused maybe a great deal of worry or anxiety. You just felt this feeling of desperation and, and helplessness and if if you can identify with that, then especially from a Christian perspective, you have to know that what I'm going to say is, well, okay, were you were you leaning into the power of God? were you uh, leaning on your relationship with Jesus and how did that? play into your handling of a situation of desperation. How did that affect your emotions, your uh, response maybe to the circumstances? I think if, if, you've, if you're here and, and you are over a certain age certainly and lived some life at all, you've probably encountered at least one Situation like that where you just felt like, I mean, she's feeling it now. I mean, honestly, uh, you feel like the times are desperate. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle the things you're going through? And I, I found it more and more while studying this scripture. Jesus had a really unique way of testing. People testing their resolve, maybe their commitment. Maybe uh, you say you want to follow me. You you say you're devoted or committed, but are you really though? I like when it comes down to it. You know where where I know you you say you want to do this. You say you believe in me, and this is Jesus during his earthly ministry, right? This is those three and a half years where he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, teaching in the synagogues, healing every kind of disease and sickness, his earthly standard operation. But those were the questions he would ask, right? Do you really want to follow me? Are you sure? And when I peel back the curtain and you see the details of what that means to follow, do you, really, do you still want to? And then situations would arise, things would happen circumstances would change and things would get stressful or desperate or maybe out of hand and you, and then you see the, the folks that Jesus encounters during his earthly ministry and you see the way they react and you think, okay, well, maybe they weren't completely sure they wanted to follow Jesus. They, they liked the idea of following Jesus but then maybe when it came down to it, Maybe I'm not prepared to do that. Well, today's passage, there's two paragraphs. And in in Matthew's account, they they both have parallel passages. The first paragraph today has a parallel in Luke chapter 9 at the end of that chapter. And then the second paragraph has a parallel in Luke chapter 8. Very similar accounts. The same instances, just told in a little different way. But here's what I found out. It's interesting as I study through this, there's a, a significant correlation between these two things. Contemplating whether or not to follow Jesus and understanding the character of Jesus. There's a, a, a very significant relationship between those two things. I'm, I'm contemplating whether or not to follow And then on this hand, how well do I understand the character of the one who wants me to follow him? And those two things are related. But here's the interesting principle. Once we have surrendered to follow Jesus, understanding his character and learning more about his character, then there really should be uh, no legitimate reason after that Not to have faith in Him. If we understand who He is and His character, how He acts, how He relates to us, once you commit and surrender to follow, there's no real reason not to trust Him. Regardless of your circumstance. And that's easy to say as a principle. It's real hard to do in real life. Right? But here's one thing... I've learned, and I'm still learning, and I know many of you probably could say the same thing. You know it, but you're still learning. Jesus is who he says he is, and he's never lied. So let's read the scripture today, and uh, we'll see, I think, in more detail, more clarity, what what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 18, and the text is on the screen if you'd like to follow there. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid? you men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Father, I pray in Jesus' name today that you would speak clearly to us, give us understanding by your Holy Spirit, and Lord, help us to be obedient to the truth you reveal to us. And Lord, remind us of this truth that if you do nothing today, then nothing will be done. We are completely, totally dependent on you work in us, through us, for our good and for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may have recognized the stories here, one about the test of discipleship, which ironically is the title of the sermon today, A Test of Discipleship, and you may have recalled the story of Jesus calming the storm and the disciples fretting for their lives and those, those two you may have read in one of the other Gospels. They have parallels in Luke, as I mentioned, but also in Mark. So the stories are there for us to know and hear. And uh, If you've been to Sunday school, if you've been to Vacation Bible School, you've probably heard those stories. But I wonder if we really understand the meaning behind these things and how the depth of what Jesus is saying and doing really affects us and our personal relationship with Jesus. So I thought if we go through these two paragraphs here, and maybe in more detail we might gain some better understanding of what Jesus is doing. The first thing that we see in the first paragraph is that we have to consider the cost of following Jesus. There's a cost. I believe, based on my personal experience and maybe my observations in 20 years of ministry thus far... I'm starting to believe that especially maybe in the in the west but particularly in the United States of America I don't know that we really grasp the cost of following Jesus. I don't think we've been asked to pay the cost of following Jesus. And 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 to understand what I mean by that all you have to do is do a little research online or turn on the news and watch what's happening Across the other parts of the world, to people who declare they believe in Jesus or they follow Jesus, they read the Bible, they uh, live according to the principles in Scripture, anything remotely like that. If you look and see what's going on in the rest of the world, we're not exposed to a real test of our faith. That's my opinion. I don't think we're exposed to persecution nearly like the rest of the world, and I, I think we, because of that. I th- now I'm not I'm not praying down persecution on the American church. I, I I don't want that, but I will tell you this: a church planter from China that I met about 12 years ago. We had a conversation one afternoon. And he was telling me about his experiences in the underground church, and he made this statement, I'll never forget it." He said, "I don't believe American churches would ever pray for persecution." And I, I, I kind of I think he could see the confusion on my face because I said, "You mean you mean pray to be delivered?" And he said, "No, no, pray for it. Like pray that it would come." He said, I don't think the American church would ever pray for persecution because the American church doesn't understand that persecution purifies the church. I said, all right, explain. He said, if, if there's no cost to pay, then you never know who's really serious. If you can just walk in with no threat, of any kind of uh, persecution or pushback or argument or debate or anything like that, and you can just go about your merry way and everybody's good with you believing in Jesus. Everybody's cool with you going to church and gathering with other believers. Everybody's fine with you singing songs to proclaim the glory of God and reading Scripture and studying and trying to learn and live by what God says. If everybody's cool with that, then how do you know that you're really, truly Devoted. If you've never been tested, if you've never had to pay a cost for that, if you've never been gathered under the cover of darkness, hidden away in a room where nobody knows you're there, and you can't even sing the worship songs out loud for fear of somebody hearing you and reporting you to the government to where you'll be coming and carted off and never heard from again, if you've never even thought through what that might be like, how do you know that your relationship, your discipleship in Christ is really, truly devoted? See, if if we don't have to pay, if we don't have a threat to pay a cost we probably need to reevaluate how strongly we are committed to this Jesus we say we're following. In this first paragraph, Jesus encounters two people. In the Luke parallel passage, there's three different people. All of uh, you know, Two of them are the same. There's one other one. But you see what happens in this text. Jesus has a crowd, the same crowd that was following. Remember, He, he finished up the Sermon on the Mount and He did three miracles of healing in the previous text. And there's crowds following and so Jesus sees the crowd so he wants to leave he wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and he's approached before they can leave he's approached by two different people here in Matthew's account one's a scribe and he says teacher I'll follow you wherever you go and Jesus immediately identifies something that other people in the crowd apparently hadn't even thought about wasn't even on the radar it was a basic human need housing a place to lie down and sleep just think to yourself if I ask this rhetorical question how many of us slept in a bed that was inside some sort of house last night just think about that Jesus didn't not during his earthly ministry did you know that any time Jesus ever slept in a house during his entire earthly ministry, it belonged to somebody else? It wasn't his. So he said to describe, well, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So if you want to follow me, you have to understand, you're going to be letting go of some common comforts. You're not going to know from night to night where you might lie down and try to to rest. Because we don't, we've we've left those things behind because we're on a different path. So the scribe thought when he said, "I'll follow you wherever you go," Jesus immediately said, "Well, will you really, though? Because do you know what I'm doing? Do you know the details of my ministry? Because that house that you're sleeping in every night, you won't be there. You still want to follow?" Jesus explained to him the true nature of the ministry and that he doesn't enjoy these basic human needs. Leon Morris said that there were people who were well disposed to him and apparently recognized that his teaching was outstanding, but they were not prepared to make the sacrifices necessary to be real disciples. It appears this scribe had just not given sufficient thought to what following Jesus meant see I'm afraid that many in many churches, especially in the United States, are in that category somehow, a lot of people might like the idea of following Jesus, but when it comes right down to it and, we, and the, the information is laid out, this is what that means, then there's a lot of second thoughts. Well, okay, I, I thought it was different. I thought I didn't know I was going to have to do that. You know, I thought I could just, you know, show up at church whenever I felt like it and, you know, throw a few dollars in the plate and everything's cool. Well, I mean, yeah, if you don't want to really follow Jesus, that's awesome. But that's not what devoted discipleship looks like. And and people I I I used this argument when I was 16, 17, 18. So I'm well versed in this argument. People ask me even today all the time. Or they don't ask me, really. They make a statement. Well, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Absolutely right. No arguments here. You know, Christians should want to be at church. I mean, you know, that's just the way it is. And, and here's why that's true. You make time to do what is important to you. It doesn't matter what it is. If this empo- if you value something, you are going to prioritize that which you value. So, you know, people can and, and this is I'm talking about I've seen it for twenty years. And before that, I did it myself. Use the same flawed thinking. Well, I don't have to be in the church all the time to be a Christian. No, you sure don't. You ever seen a picture of a safari like out on the Serengeti? You ever seen like a big herd of zebras? And then you see over here you got a little pride of lions. And they're on they're on the hunt. And then one younger, weaker zebra kind of gets separated out from the pack. Where do the lions go? They go straight for that one that's out of the safety of the pack. So the herd of zebras is a formidable force because they can fend off together. They can protect themselves. But you get outside the the herd, you're on your own. I'm just going to leave that right there. Another interesting thing here that what Jesus says about his lack of human necessities, nowhere to lay his head, the word that's used in verse 20 is the exact same word used in John's Gospel in chapter 19 and verse 30 when Jesus said, It is finished. And then He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. So the, the thing that Jesus never had in his earth, in, during His earthly ministry he had when he was on the cross. He finally laid his head down. And that was when he was dying for our sins. So he he gave up those things in his earthly ministry because he knew that one day he would finally have that rest and it, it was in giving his life for us. So the second disciple approaches and you see in verse 21... I'll follow you, but first I need to go take care of this. And I believe we've talked about this before when we looked at, at Luke chapter 9, that more than likely this man's father was still living and he was projecting out into the future a responsibility he was going to have that also, by the way, involved him receiving an inheritance. So so let's not miss the true details of what's happening here. When he says, hey, I'll follow you, Lord, but prefer, uh, first let uh, permit me first to go bury my father... So he's thinking in the future, well, I don't want to miss out on this. I, I need to fulfill this obligation, but I also need to make sure that my inheritance is in order. And so I have other priorities. So he knows, the first guy didn't know the cost of following Jesus. The second guy did know, which is why he was reluctant. Because he knew once he left, he was not coming back. So he understood more about this, the nature of following Jesus. And interestingly enough, David Turner writes that Jesus' pun here about the dead can bury their own dead means that those who will bury the would-be disciple's father are dead to the kingdom of God. They're not alive to the rigorous eschatological demands, the end times that supersede even one's duty to their parents. So in this first paragraph, both individuals are disqualified As disciples, the first one had enthusiasm that was just arisen from his ignorance of the cost. And the second one was timid because his awareness of the cost. Like, well, if I leave, I won't be able to do these things, so I can't go yet. But either one weren't fit for the kingdom. Interestingly enough, in the Luke parallel passage, in Luke 9, verse 57 to 62, you know what Luke records Jesus saying as the last sentence in that story? He says Jesus looks at the three people who thought they were ready to follow and he says no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's an interesting commentary. So we have to consider the cost of following Jesus. But the second thing we'll see in this second paragraph is we need to consider the character of the Jesus we follow. Have we by chance... Maybe unintentionally, have we created a Jesus of our own design? you know what that means? Jesus reveals Himself to us in His Word. We see the character. We understand who He is, how He relates. But if that doesn't sit exactly well with us, we might be tempted to create our own Jesus. And, and here's what that might look like. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, to me, God is something like this. Or I see God as... Okay, so, to which I would respond, Well, let me just stop you right there. Okay, because it doesn't matter how you see God or how you think of God. It it matters how God is presented to us in His Word, how He's revealed to us in real life. And He he has given every uh, characteristic about Himself that we need to know right here. In Scripture, So, you know, I, I can't... Well, I think of God like this. It does, Listen here. It doesn't matter how I think of God. It matters how God reveals Himself. That's the one true God, how God is revealed to us in Scripture. So, if we think we know God because... Well, I like to think of God. That's not the true God. We've created an idol that caters to our particular understanding of God. Does that make sense? you understand what I'm saying? If if we don't rely on what Scripture says, we've just created an idol. And we don't even realize it. Because we're not worshipping the one true God as He's revealed to us in Scripture. So we have to consider the character of the Jesus we follow. And so in this second paragraph, it looks like a miracle, and it is. But you know what it really is? This is a... Uh, a proof test of discipleship. Because just in the first paragraph, the two people came up to Jesus and said, well, I'll follow you, but this. And and so Jesus is like, okay, well, let me me test that theory out. Because I'm going to test the twelve. Because the crowds were there, and these other two people were part of the crowds. But when he goes in the boat and goes to go across the sea, that's the twelve. So now he's like, alright, let me put these closest followers to the test. Let's see how they react, here it is, when life goes haywire. When something unexpected happens, and you don't know what's going to happen, you don't know how to respond, you don't know what to do, you don't know if anything can happen to resolve the situation, you're desperate. How do you react? How do you respond given your relationship with Jesus? It's a very interesting turn of events after these... um, Interviews with these prospective disciples because Jesus leads the disciples into the boat and they follow Him, but then when they encounter this storm, their faith gets tested and they learn that Jesus has authority that is sufficient to overcome any trial. So what's interesting about this? Verse 24, there arose a great storm. You know what's really neat about this? Literally translated, you know, what, you know what words are used right there? The great storm? You ever heard of a, uh, what the, the technical name for an earthquake is? The technical name, the scientific name. It's, it is a seismic event, right? You have people who study earthquakes. They're called seismologists, right? Well, guess what word Matthew uses to describe this storm? seismos it's like an earthquake in the water and the word after it says in the Greek is mega so large it's a large earthquake in the water that's what happened that's why you, you ever seen the effect an earthquake has out to sea and it's delayed anybody know what happens a tsunami right that's right tidal wave so they're on the sea of Galilee and that's what happens the, when it says the boat's being swept over by the water, it's not playing. It's like an earthquake in the middle of the sea that's covering the boat with water, and so naturally the disciples are petrified. You know what else is interesting about this? Four of the twelve disciples were commercial fishermen by trade prior to following Jesus, which means they were well informed about the weather and about how the sea you know, worked on the Sea of Galilee. They were there all the time. That was their career. And yet they're just as scared as everybody else. What did all 12 of the disciples completely forget about? Who's in the boat with them? Last I checked, it was Jesus who got into the boat who led the disciples into the boat. So here's the thing. Does it make real good sense? I mean, we've got... Don't we have Jesus with us... I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's with us, right? We can't physically see him though, right? Well, these twelve brothers have him sitting right there in the boat. Physically. He's right there. What did they just see before they did this? He just healed three, three different people. He's proven he is the Son of God. He has power and authority over everything, and he's in the boat, and they're in the boat, he's not worried, but they're losing their minds. How does that work? In fact, he's so not worried, he's asleep. Does anybody see the irony here? Now, why is this a test of discipleship? Look what Jesus says and does when they wake Him up. Because their reaction is, Lord, save us. We're perishing. Are you, though? Jesus is lying right there. And He's not worried. Now, if Jesus is worried, I'm worried. But He's, he's asleep. Right? So what, what just happened? Look at the response Jesus gives. This is so informative to this story. The immediate need. Lord, save us, we're perishing. Or in Luke, they call Him Master, Master. Now, what did Jesus first say and do when He was awoken? This is so telling. Verse 26 it doesn't say that he immediately got up and calmed everything down. He saw fit to have a little conversation before he calmed everything down. you see this? It's right there. It's right there for us to see. Verse 26, He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? He, the storm's still blowing. Hadn't calmed it down yet. Why are you afraid? Why is your faith so small? Then he got up. By the way, nobody answered him. See that? Probably out of sheer embarrassment. He got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and became perfectly calm. You know what Jesus would say in John Chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus brought peace out of chaos. But it was not without asking a very important question. I'm right here. Why is your faith so small? Why are you... Listen, listen, this is really important. Why are you focused so much on all this stuff going on around you and you're not focused on me? I'm right here. Jesus was literally right there in the boat. I'm right here. Why are you paying attention to all this stuff, all these problems, all these challenges, all these obstacles in your way? Why don't you just focus on me? And by the way, do you think this is my sanctified imagination? Do you, do, does he think that he's really asleep? I mean, it says Jesus was sleeping, but was he really? Or was that part of the test? You remember the text of scripture I just read at the beginning of the service from Psalm 121, which, by the way, let me read this and now I'll tell you, verses 3 and 4, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you think Jesus was blind to the fact that the storm was there? How about this? Jesus probably created the storm. Or he certainly allowed the storm. If he didn't actually start it up, he let it go. All to test the faith of his closest followers. Now here's the funny thing. You know how I preach, right? I pray about what God wants us to go through. We preach through books of the Bible. That's typical. We've been going through Matthew since December of last year. We've been going through the Psalms on Sunday nights since last year sometime. And that schedule has changed multiple times due to different events going on so that what I was going to do on one night is now pushed to a different night. And, you know, it changes frequently. Well, you know what's really interesting? As I'm studying this this week, you know what I find out? The very Sunday where in the morning now we're looking at this particular passage of Scripture where Jesus is asleep in the boat and I'm drawn to this reference that says He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Guess what psalm we're scheduled to do tonight in our Bible study? Psalm 121. You think that just happened by accident? Nope. God saw this day little you know little church in Sally, little preacher doesn't amount to anything with a little preaching schedule. and Matthew 8 24 and Psalm 121 just happened to be on the exact same Sunday. God's funny like that. And see, this storm didn't just all of a sudden start to decline and eventually it died out. It was instant. Everything was peaceful because Jesus has ultimate authority over everything. He didn't have to hope that the storm would die out. But see, this miracle over nature is intended to teach us about discipleship because Jesus didn't just calm the storm. He did a little heart check with the disciples first. Why are you so afraid? You of little faith. So this right here is the big nugget for us today. When we're studying this passage, have we considered the cost of following Jesus? And when things go haywire in our lives and we don't know what to do, where do we look? Do we get afraid? Do we freak out? Do we get worried and nervous and anxious? Or do we just go straight to Jesus and focus on Him? Knowing that He's more powerful than anything in our lives, any problem we face doesn't matter what it is. And you can, you can think to yourself right now, well, preacher, you just don't know what I'm going through. No, I sure don't. But Jesus does. And He can flat handle it. When will we get that through our heads? I don't have to know what you're going through. I know an almighty God who can take care of it. However He chooses to do so. There's nothing that Jesus cannot do. And you know how I know that? Personally, for sure. Because He saved my wretched soul. He died on a cross. He forgave my sins. Don't you think that's more challenging than anything else we face in our lives on earth? Dealing with my sin? That's impossible. Apart from Christ. It's impossible. And Jesus did that. He did that for me and anybody else who surrenders to Him in repentance and faith, anybody, everybody, Jesus saves, forgives, cleanses from all unrighteousness, promises eternal life. That's what Jesus can do. And you think, if He can do all of that, suddenly He can't handle this situation at my workplace, or this situation in my family, or this situation with my kids, or or anything. You think Jesus can't handle that? Where did we get that in our heads? Where did that come from? I'll tell you. There's another story that we won't go into in detail right now, but do you remember when the disciples were in the boat... And Jesus was walking on the water. And Peter said, Alright, if it's really you, tell me to come out there with you. And Jesus said, Alright, come on out. Do you remember that? And you remember Peter's actually walking on the water. And he's looking straight at Jesus. And then, what does Peter do when he starts to sink? Oh, look at the waves. Look at the wind. Oh my goodness, I'm standing on the water. What in the world's going on? All right, he, he took his eyes off of Jesus, he started to sink. (laughs) That is the most obvious illustration you could possibly ask for. You take your eyes off of Jesus, you start to sink. You focus on Jesus, who is bigger, greater, than all our problems, then we won't worry as much about our problems because we know that Jesus is with us to address our problems to the point that this miraculous action gives a response in these disciples. Look at what they do in verse 27. The men were amazed, you don't say, and said, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. So Jesus has shown Himself to be the Lord of nature, but the miracle is intended to teach us about discipleship. Because here's the most critical concern in this whole story. It's not potential persecution. It's not disaster. It's the quality of our faith. The quality... Of our faith, which is directly proportionate to the accuracy of our perception of Jesus, who is the object of our faith. If we don't know who Jesus is, then we won't have the faith that we are supposed to have in Him, because somehow in our hearts and minds, we won't believe that He really can handle whatever we got going on. See, anytime we doubt Jesus, it's not because He's not able. It's not, not because He's ever failed us before. It's simply because we just don't know Him well enough. It's not that we don't believe enough. It's like we don't know about Him. We don't remember who He is. Our understanding of His character. So these two principles. This, this is our, uh, a good way to kind of tie it all together. We have to pay close attention counting the cost or considering the cost of following Jesus And here's what that looks like. What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to part with? And what are we unwilling to let go of? Because I heard another preacher say this a long time ago, and it's still true. Remember this. If Jesus is not Lord of all, He may not be Lord at all. Is there something we're holding back? Unwilling to give up? count the cost second we have to consider the character of this jesus we follow how well do we know our lord or maybe another question we need to consider is how well do we know our bible because that's where we learn about our lord and who he is how he reveals himself so we would do well to saturate our hearts and minds with scripture because not only has, as Second Peter 1 says, not only has He provided everything pertaining to life and godliness, God's Word provides the only true, accurate portrait of Jesus through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything we need is right here in the Bible. Everything we know, need to know about God, about Christ, it's right here. We don't have to... Worry and by the way you know that do you know there's a cure for worry there's a cure for anxiety did you know that there's a cure for depression there's a cure for thoughts of suicide there's a, a cure for all these things you know what they, you know what it is get close to Jesus how, how on earth do we think we can possibly navigate through this sinful dark world without Jesus. We've got to get close to Jesus. I'm going to leave you with a quote from David Turner who wrote a a great uh, commentary on Matthew. He says, The first priority of disciples must be to focus on the power of Jesus, not the power of life's storms that threaten to overcome them. To overcome... Anemic faith. Disciples must trust in the power of Jesus. Unless they're saved from little faith, they will indeed perish. Folks, there is no good reason on this earth not to trust in Jesus. There's just no good reason. I didn't say there was no reason. I said there's no good reason. People come up with reasons all the time. To not trust in Jesus. But none of them are good. Because once you know him, the better you get to know him, you realize there's nothing he can't do. Trust in Jesus. That that's that's all he's asking. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. This message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.